Well, it's Father's Day, and Father's Day is a day worth celebrating. I don't have to say that on Mother's Day because it's a given, but on Father's Day I have to say that it's worth celebrating. Now, we as a people like to, and I think this is, this is something that has happened for generations, we like to talk about how bad things have gotten. And most of the time, when we talk about how bad things have gotten, it's just rubbish. They've always been about like that. But there are particular things that happen in history where where certain things get really bad. So, you know, there's always been disease in this world, and, and yet you know that when the bubonic plague hit, it was a particularly bad uh, disease and spreading of disease. There, there were particularly bad consequences from that one disease, right? <clears throat> and so today, fatherhood really has fallen on hard times. Fatherhood and fathers are not honored, not respected. And of course, that has always been a problem, right? But, particularly today, we have lost any understanding of what it means to be a father, why fatherhood is important. And so we're going to look at Ephesians Chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 8. But before we go into that, I want to say that knowing that fatherhood has fallen on hard times, that fatherhood is not honored, that that I have to start the service by saying Father's Day really is worth celebrating, and not simply to stroke your egos, but that fatherhood itself is worth celebrating. This does not justify us in wanting to go back in time to another age where fatherhood was still respected and honored. I want to say that again. The fact that fatherhood has fallen on hard times and that I'm about to preach on the necessity of honoring fatherhood itself, okay, does not justify us in wanting to go back to something that previously existed, to this other age where fatherhood, even though I say yes, it was, it was more honored. It was better understood. This is not the desire of us as Christians. This is not the desire of the church to go back in time to a previous age. And here's why. Because with the rise of feminism and the fall of the love of fatherhood, our understanding of God the Father and our own fatherhood is increasing. Okay? This is, the, this is the way that God works through history, that as heresies arise, that the church actually grows in knowledge, that the truth is actually strengthened. And so for us to go back in time to another age 
where fatherhood was better respected, better known, better understood, okay, that would be to go backwards in a bad way. So as, as fatherhood has, has declined, as its honor has declined, as the heresy of feminism has risen, we as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, move forward in a way that our fathers never could. We move forward in a way that our fathers never could. And so we are to learn from what they knew. We are to stand on their shoulders. We are not to dishonor them, but we are also not to return to some other time. And and I don't care what time you particularly like, you might like the era of the 50s. You might like the era of the 1800s. You might like the era of the uh, late 1800s in the Wild West with John Wayne. You might like the era of any number of places where you've seen true men displayed. And I particularly like the era of the, the, the fathers, the early church fathers, the patriarchs, if you will, okay, of the faith. They were such manly men. If you, if you read about the, if you read about Bishop Ambrose, he was a man. He stood up to the emperor himself and refused him communion and said, not until you repent for sending your soldiers to murder a whole town. And that repentance had to be public. And here he is, he's the, he's the emperor. You don't do that unless you're a man, right? And so I, I would love to return to that era. But no. So whatever era, particularly where you've seen men who are like, maybe particularly honorable, or maybe particularly strong, or maybe particularly independent, or maybe particularly any, any number of things, or you're like, that seems attractive to me. Okay, we are not returning there. We are pressing forward, having learned through the attack on fatherhood that comes via feminism, to a new era of better fatherhood. Now, that may seem impossible to you, both in the broader culture and in your own life, but it's not. It's not impossible any more than it was impossible for Arianism to be finally, truly condemned by the church when that seemed like an impossible battle. And Athanasius was fighting that battle his whole life. And he got exiled, chased by soldiers. You'd think it was never going to end, that he, he, was, he was the only one left. But God brought about the strengthening of his church, and they progressed beyond that heresy to an era of stronger understanding of the Trinity. And so this is what I want to start with. I want to start today by saying, you men 
who are fathers or who are looking to be fathers one day, you are not to go backwards. You are not to go backwards in time, but you are to press forward to a greater understanding, standing on the shoulders of those men who have gone before us, but improving your understanding of fatherhood even beyond what they understood. And as we do that, we will reach greater heights. We will tear down fortresses of worldly philosophy, and we will destroy the empty doctrines of demons by the power of the word of God. Now let's read Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 21. Paul is writing, picking up in verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation, my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is a father to the Ephesians. He's a father to the Ephesians. He His relationship to that church is so close, so filled with love, so sweet. 
the elders. He meets with later on. He cries with them, knowing that they won't see each other again. And what do we see him doing here? We see him intentionally modeling to the Ephesians how they are to act. In this case, through his praying. He prays. Verse 14, when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What he's saying is he's going to God in prayer. And it's part of the reason that we kneel for our prayer of confession. Because it is appropriate for us to fall on our knees as we come to God. But what is he praying for? Well, Paul has been given the job of apostle. And it's quite the job, it's quite the calling that he's been given. It's an amazing work. And so he describes that work, and he says that it's to declare the mystery of the gospel so that the church would be established. And that's what you saw happen in Ephesus, right? Paul preached, he declared the gospel, and the church was established. So he, he, he proclaims the mystery of the gospel for the establishment of the church so that rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will know the manifold wisdom of God. How? Not through him, not through his preaching, but through the church itself. I want you to look at that progression there. Remember, he's, in verse 8, He's saying that he's been given to preach to the Gentiles these unfathomable riches of Christ, that is the gospel, and to bring to light something that had been hidden, this this administration, this mystery, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers. Through the church, to the rulers. And so, you've just got this, you've got this multi-step process that Paul is describing. Of course, Paul's always describing multi-step processes, right? I mean, to follow along with Paul in his writing is, as Peter said, sometimes very difficult. This is, this is true. And it's, It's not just true experientially for you and I. It's declared by God in his word that some of the letters of Paul are hard. So if you're ever finding it difficult to to follow along with, with Paul's letters, don't be discouraged by that. But know that God said, yeah, that's true. They are hard sometimes. But that they have a purpose, right? And so, and so Paul is, is, is talking about how He was given this work and what the work is leading to, right? He's declaring the gospel, the church is being established so that through the church, the rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly places, would see through the church displaying it, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, manifold means 
manifold. <laughs> Big unrolling. Have you ever seen one of those? Uh, um, you ever seen one of those uh, magicians pulling a, a scarf, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. This is. There are manifold colors on that scarf, right? And and it just keeps rolling out. What? The wisdom of God. It just it, you just know more and more and more of it through what? Through the church. How? Well, because the gospel is made known. So here's this is this is where I was going in my introduction, just saying, look, you cannot go backwards to something, the church is moving forward in its knowledge of what it means to be a father. It's this unrolling of the manifold wisdom of God. And so now as the church grows in its understanding of fatherhood, this is being displayed to the authorities, even in the heavenly places, as we begin to understand it and do it. Not as Jordan Peterson begins to understand it and do it, unless he turns to faith in Jesus Christ. He is not declaring through the church the manifold wisdom of God, right? Now, he may have much wisdom in understanding little bits and pieces of what it means to be a man. And in fact, he does. But where does it come from? Well, now we get to the heart of our text. It comes from our Heavenly Father. It comes from our Heavenly Father. And so Paul is praying to the Father, God the Father. He prays for the Ephesians. And we'll get to what he prays in a second, but first I I just want you to note that Paul is recognizing through his prayer that all of this is impossible without prayer. So he's, he's, he's just gotten done talking about the glorious work that he's been set apart to, the fruit that will come from it, which is the, the church going out with, with knowledge and with power such that God's wisdom is displayed everywhere. And what does he do? He turns around and he begins, he falls on his knees before God the Father, and he begins to pray for the Ephesians. The Ephesians, who had an established church, you're seeing the fruit. You already have this multi-step process having taken place in Ephesus. Paul preached. The church was established through their living, through their declaration, through through the church in Ephesus, The the manifold wisdom of God was displayed to the world. And Paul still falls on his knees and begins to pray. 
nothing will continue. None of that, none of that process will continue. None of the steps will repeat without God being at work. And so Paul falls on his knees and he prays. And of course, this should make complete sense to us as we think about the, the, lost, the lost fatherhood of our nation. How many families without fathers? How many, I mean, I was preaching in the jail yesterday, and of course you're preaching the day before Father's Day, and I asked all of them, how many of you have kids? Almost, I think it was all but three men raised their hands, and even then one of those three raised his hand later on about his, with another question for one of his kids. And they, they all have fathers. One of them in there said he'd uh, been in jail the entire life of all of his kids. They'd never met him. And this is lost, the, the, the lostness of fatherhood. And of course, there's, there's no hope in his mind. That was his point. He said it's beyond restoration, that time is past. There is no hope. Is there any hope that the church in America could declare the truth of the fatherhood of God today. There's almost no hope. Actually, there is no hope unless God is at work. Unless God begins to reveal to us through his word and through his spirit what it means to be fathers, we're just going to go with the culture. As, as the church has been doing, right? Unless he awakens us to the error, unless he begins to restore the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children, what hope is there in America? What hope is there in the church? There's none. And so we must first see that when Paul, Paul who could preach, Paul who could teach, Paul who could write letters, Paul, who understood more deeply, so deeply that he could, that he could convey in written form these truths that we can't even, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. Paul didn't rely on any of that. He instead fell on his knees in prayer. Paul, who had had Visions, who'd been brought up into the seventh heaven. Paul had come to know God the Father, and therefore he began to pray. That's what I want us to see first. I mean, I I keep saying he prayed, he prayed, he prayed, but what I want you to see is that that prayer, it, it came out of the fact that he knew God as his father. He knew God as his father. And so if you think about the you think about us being sons of God. And think about the fact that we have been adopted as sons and so and so we face some of the same the same 
errors, temptations, dangers that adopted kids in our families face. And what is that? To not look to your father as your father. To not look to him as your provider. To to not think that there's any way that you can rely on him or your mother, but but rather to think, well, I'm going to have to take care of myself. But Paul knew God as his father, and so what does he do? He turns to him. And that's what we want our children to do. We want our children, as fathers, we want them to come to us when they have struggles, when they have temptations, when they have needs. We want them to see us as the provider of good things. Why? Well, because we want to be like our Heavenly Father in that. This is what Paul knew about God, that God was his Heavenly Father, and he he could do nothing better in all of his desires than to turn to God in prayer. And then what does he say? He, he says to the Ephesians, right after he's saying that he's praying for them, he asks them not to lose heart or be discouraged at the heavy labor that he's undertaking for them. The prison sentence that he's serving for them. That's one kind of heavy labor. There's many things that fathers do for their children. Paul was a spiritual father. And how many of us have been embarrassed by the fact that we need a father to guide us and discipline us? In our pride, we don't want to have to turn to somebody Children, it doesn't take you, you know, up till but the age of two or three to say, I can do it myself, right? And can we do it ourselves? No, this is why he's given us earthly fathers, right? Isn't this what he says in Hebrews 12? That he's given us earthly fathers so that they can discipline us as they as they see fit, which of course is not quite implying that they do it right. As a matter of fact, it's contrasted with the heavenly discipline from our heavenly Father who does it perfectly, and perfectly what? Perfectly in love. And so don't be embarrassed that you need help. Don't be embarrassed that you need an earthly, spiritual father to... to, to strengthen you, to exhort you, to encourage you, to discipline you, to guide you. We all do. God hasn't just been a heavenly father to us with no intermediary of fatherhood. He's placed us in families. Families with with fathers in them. And as a matter of fact, That's really the central point that we see him make with regard to God the Father. Aside from the fact that God is love, 
God is also Father. He is Father. He is not a Father. He is the Father. He is not Father-like. He is truly the Father. And so Paul, being an earthly father to the Ephesians, an earthly spiritual father, says that it is the glory of the Ephesians that he's in jail on their behalf, that he is suffering on their behalf. Why? That's not something that we typically think. Like, okay, well, you know, I'm making, I'm making trouble again for my for my dad, or I've made trouble again for my, and so, you know, for my elder, for my pastor, I'm, I've made more work, and so, you know, that's something that we always want to be ashamed of. That's something that we always want to be embarrassed of, that we always want to think, well, like, oh, I better go hide my, haste, hide my face, I'm, you know, I'm just, like, I have needs, right? I mean, we don't want to acknowledge that that's normal, We don't want to acknowledge, we want to think of ourselves as beyond that, above that. But Paul says, no, this is your glory that I'm able to suffer on your behalf as your father. Why? Because it makes clear that they are a part of the same family with God as their true father. Paul is not their ultimate father. But insofar as he is in God and he is a father to them and he is doing that work on their behalf, it's clear that they are, they are part of one body in Jesus Christ, adopted by their heavenly father. And so it's their glory. It's this weird thing, right? But like, when, when, when we have to do things for our kids, It's nothing that makes us, it's nothing that they should be ashamed about that Father goes and works and provides food for them. Right? It's actually a glorious thing because it shows that they are our children. That they're one in the same family. It's this sweet thing. And so this is where this is where Paul goes when he says next that our father that this father the god father who he prays to that he falls on his knees before is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name So God, our Father, is eternally Father to his eternally begotten Son. What that means is that if there's an analogy, this Father is kind of like that Father. This one is the the pattern. This is the copy. It's that we are the copy and God is the original. The analogy is we are sort of like God and therefore we are called fathers. It's not that there were earthly, there was this earthly relationship that God set up where there were families and fathers and so forth. And then 
from that, he was like, well, you know, I'm kind of like that. You could call me sort of like a father. What we see here instead is exactly the opposite, that every family on earth receives its name from him, the father. Now that word family comes from the same root as father. So in Greek it says that he is the pater, father, from whom all patria receives its name. Okay, the pater from whom all patria receives its name. Why is that important? Well, because we don't have any concept of what a family is today. Right? A family might be two women that have adopted children and live together, or a family might be, you know, um, well, anything. A family might be anything. But in this case, family has to be understood to, to, to connect to fatherhood. In Luke 2, this same word is used, speaking of Joseph, when he goes back to Bethlehem with Mary because he was of the house and lineage of David. Because he was of the house and patria of David. And so, family, lineage, you could say, the father from whom all fatherhoods receive their name. Fatherhood, singular, isn't quite right because it's like a concept. All fatherhood receives its name. It's true that all fatherhood, generally, this, this concept receives its name. But in this case, he's not just saying that all of fatherhood receives its name from God the Father. He's, he's actually saying all of the fatherhoods in heaven and on earth, every single one of them received their name from God the Father. You see that? Every single family. And so, and so what this, this extends beyond the nuclear family where there's a father, a mother, and 2.1 children. And it extends into things like when I say that Paul is a father, a spiritual father to the church in Ephesus. That, that patria, they're of, the, they're of the line of Paul. Not in any way that they could ever turn around, of course, and say, well, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Jesus, right? Because Paul explicitly condemns them, that, in another church, right? But rather, they're of the line of Paul insofar as he is in Christ. Insofar as he has as his father, God the Heavenly Father. And so this, this concept of lineage of family includes the idea of receiving a name. He was of the, the house and lineage of David. What does that mean? He had the name David. Now, of course, his name was Joseph, right? 
But for him to be in that lineage means that he knows. He knows what he's a part of. And it's a big lineage, and it's an important lineage. Why? Well, because God promised that that the Messiah would come in that same line. And so now, all of you kids, you're in the line of your fathers. And the question is, will you follow them into the fatherhood of God? Because if you do not become a follower of Jesus Christ, if instead you reject the covenant of God that he has made with your father, by rejecting God, you reject your father. Your your earthly father, your heavenly father. You reject everything about what it means to be in his line. This is the sadness of Esau giving up his birthright. The the wickedness to not care, to to be of the line of your father, to to have his name as your name. And so Jacob, for all his faults and all his lies and his wickedness and so forth, he understood something that we don't get today, right? That we, that, that there, that it means something to be of your father. And to be about your father's work. Think of Jesus speaking of, in John of the, that, he, that he couldn't do anything but do the work of his father. He couldn't do anything but what he saw his father already doing. And this is what you, this is what you sons are to be like. You're to be about the work of your dads. You're to be doing the work of your fathers. And, and fathers, you, you, can't, you can't squelch them in this. Don't. Don't prevent them from joining you in your work. And if you think you don't have any work that they can join you in, you're probably wrong, number one. And number two, make some. You say, well, don't I already have enough work? God, our Father, is who we are imitating. God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, is who we are to be like. And so this family, this lineage, you could call it, uh, you know, a father family. I'm a part of the father family of... Because, because it's named from the Father. And so with feminism and the rise of uh, rejecting the name of the Father, right? Not taking the name of the husband and, and, and wanting to somehow keep everything separate, we're just, we're just attacking the fatherhood of God. We're rejecting the whole pattern that he set up. And what I want you to see as we, as we move forward now from this understanding of the him being the template, I want you to see that what you end up rejecting 
if you reject taking his name, is you reject his love. It's the only way to, it's, it's the only possible way to reject being in the line of your father is, is to reject his love. And to give up his name is truly sad. It's truly sad in our, in our nation that there are so many people who could sing along with Jillian Welch's song. Just another baby born to a girl lost and lorn. Ain't one soul in the whole world knows my name. How many children there are who have no idea what their name is, who their father is? Ain't one soul in the whole world knows my name. What a mournful song. We don't even realize how sad it is to not know our Father. And so when the gospel is proclaimed and it says that John, that Elijah will return and he'll restore the hearts of, he'll proclaim the good news and prepare the way of the Lord and restore the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. This is what the world needs today in America. It needs a true Father's Day. What a beautiful thing. A stupendous thing. A miraculous thing. That I can declare, even to those men who are in jail who have never met their children, that if God is able to make Paul... The, who is, as he says, less than the least of all the saints. If he's able to make Paul into an apostle, the, the persecutor of the brethren, into an apostle, the one who is establishing the church, part of the foundation that is laid, right? Those 12 foundation stones, the apostles, along with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, right? What? This is what God is able to make Paul, the the destroyer of the church, into. Then is he not able to restore fatherhood? Of course he is. Of course he is. And what kind of fatherhood is he restoring? Well, of course, since we know so little about fatherhood today, we could spend hours on this kind of fatherhood. That you think of how little respect there is for fathers today. Think of the, the, the lack of honor for fathers and mothers. And, and you think of the, uh, 
the disobedience, and you think of all of the things that are that are terrible in our culture about how we think lowly of fatherhood. But but what Paul does is he makes it just really about one thing. He makes it about the love of our Heavenly Father. I already touched on this, but now let's, let's look at the passage again. What kind of father is he? He is a loving Heavenly Father. In fact, he is love, just as he is the Father. God is love. Deep, wide, high, boundless love. Love that sends his own son to die for those who hate him. And that is indeed a love that is beyond comprehension, isn't it? And this is the second part of Paul's prayer. That the church in Ephesus would know the love of God. We are to be rooted in love. Let's read those verses again. In verse 16... That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend something that is incomprehensible. So that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so when we know the love of God, the only way we can know the love of God in that way is if we have faith. You saw the progression, right? that he would grant you, verse 16 again, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this is, this is not the typical progression that we talk about uh, when we're talking about Justification. We're talking about justification. We talk about faith. And then Christ dwelling in our hearts. And then being strengthened by his spirit to have power. Right? And in fact, we cannot have any power... We cannot fight against our sin unless that happens first. 
But here, Paul flips it all on its head. So he's not talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification. He's saying you have to be strengthened before you can understand this. You have to be strengthened so that you can have power, so that you can have Christ in your heart. And and you say, well, I have Christ in my heart. I've given my heart to Christ, and he's in my heart. And, And I say, but are you being sanctified? Are you living a holy life? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, which is bigger, the ocean or God's love? Nope. God's love. Good guess, though. The ocean's pretty big, isn't it? And who can grasp the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of the ocean? We can't. We can't grasp. We can't know it. You can study it. You can, you can cite the numbers. How deep is the Mariana Trench? Anybody know? I don't know. You can say, really, 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 really deep. But does that begin to help you comprehend it? No. God's love is incomprehensible. It surpasses knowledge. And of course, a love that would send Jesus Christ to die for sinners, that is an incomprehensible love. And that's what we're to be rooted in, that love. And that's going to take the Spirit strengthening us so that we have power in the inner man. And so, men who are fathers, men who are growing into fathers, young men, old men, you are to have power. Now, of course, immediately, in our context, we think, well, that must, you know, so, so we're to have power over our household. And I say, no, you are to have power over the inner man. And from that, Christ will dwell in you and you will begin to understand love. You will begin to know love. When Christ dwells in us through faith, then we know God's love. Have you ever felt as a father like you just had to love and love and love and love, and love, and love, and love. And there was just no end to the amount of love that you had to love. 
No amount of selfless love would really ever be enough for all the people that you have to love. And the more, you, the more that you proceed as a father, the more children you have. And I don't just mean that in a biological sense. Remember, it says all families receive their name from our Heavenly Father. And so what does that include? Well, not the idiotic corporate workplace family where there is no father, okay? But the family business where everything ultimately relies on that one man and where everybody looks to him as a real father, where they go to him for guidance, they trust him to keep their business going and their jobs and to be paying them. They, that man, that man is a father. The one who starts a church, the one who starts a school, the one who starts a business and has people who he's to love and who, who he's responsible for. They're called families. But only if there's a father. If there's no father, you can call it a family all you want. But it hasn't received its name from God. And so the more you do, the the more the amount of love that you have to give grows. The more selflessness it requires. The more patience it requires. The more the more love. And do you really have enough love for two kids? For five kids? For seven kids? Do you really have enough love for one wife? Forget no kids. Do you ever feel like if you loved like that, you would be empty in the end? God is the source of our fatherhood, and he is the one who is the source of this love. And he's the one who sent his son to empty himself for the sake of his bride, his family, his lineage so that it would be established, so that there would be no end to the amount of love. And we see that in this passage. In verse 19, when we know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, we are filled up to all the fullness of God. Does that sound amazing? That's because it is. To be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so do you want to be a good father? Then you have to know your heavenly father. You have to know how he is as a father. 
you have to know that his love is central to his fatherhood. And not just central, but that it's infinite. It just keeps going. And if you think that it's a small, short, stubby love that you have from God, then you will never be generous with your own love. Until you know his love, the way that it's described in this passage, to know his love, to know the very thing that it says immediately after that is unknowable. then you will never run out because you will be filled with all the fullness of God. And so you will give love beyond measure to your family and you will overflow beyond your wife to your children. You'll overflow beyond your children to the workplace. You will overflow in your love to all those who you take responsibility for. And in fact, you'll begin to take responsibility for even more people. Because you will be filled with all the fullness of God. And so there won't be any lack of love. It'll just keep, it'll just keep coming. And you say, well, that's going to require me to sacrifice, isn't it? And I say, yep. And then, and then what will you do? you'll realize that all your love can only go so far in accomplishing what you desire because of your love to see happen in people. And so what will you do? You'll fall to your knees and you will begin to pray for your people. Those who have your name. Those who you love. You'll join Paul on his knees, knowing that unless God is at work, there will be no hope for your children, for the church of Ephesus, for the gospel to go forward, for the Gentiles to be converted. For your children to love God. Let's pray.